This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Right now, you know what day it is. You've been waiting for this. We've all been waiting for this. Big events, they're starting to get bigger. And they're starting to come back. And one of them is kicking off right now. And it looks like we may get a little sunshine in the area for this afternoon. London Rib Fest is back. And London Rib Fest President Doug Hillier joins us right now. Doug, how are things? Oh, things were wet this morning. They're a little bit, still a bit soggy. But, wow, we're off to a great start. A lot of happy people. Good. That's what we want to hear. Okay, so have you been able to? Because I know you are running around making sure everything is working as it's supposed to. Have you had a chance to talk to anybody, or are you just looking at smiling faces and hungry faces walking by you? Well, absolutely. In fact, I'm running right now. If I seem out of breath, I'm walking from one side of the park to the other side of the park just to make sure everything's going smooth. But uh, all along my way, uh, I've been asking. I've been having pats on the back. So feeling real good. That's not bad. Okay, take us back to previous rib fests. Would you ever get pats on the back before? Yes, I, I did, but nowhere near like this. Uh, like, people are going out of their way, complete strangers uh, who've seen my picture in the paper. Uh, even with my mask on, I'm getting those kind of comments. Never really had that before. Uh, people go out of my way to talk about, uh, thanks for coming back. Well, then let's talk about what people are able to see and do coming up this weekend. And it's nice that you make it feel as though the weekend starts on a Thursday. Thanks for that, especially for a long weekend. So, Doug, what is in place for today? Let's start there. Well, we've got all of our rivers set up. They're rearing to go. They're yelling and screaming. And uh, I I think that uh, if you came down here now, it's probably your best time to, to come because Thursday is always slower, and then there's no lineups. So they're going to see no lineups today. That's what the first thing you're going to see. You're going to see along the, the tree line, you're going to see all the craft uh, beer vendors, and they're all set up ready for you. And uh, they're nicely in nest- nestled in the trees. It's great atmosphere down here. Fantastic. Now, in terms of entertainment for this weekend, what can you tell us about that? Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we got, got, I'm right next to a river right here, and they're making some nice noise. This is how they chant, if you can hear it live. Come on, guys, give me some cheers. Rib fest. Rib fest. Oh, you guys. You, I mean, you know, part of this show is all the cheering and going on. Who t- Bring it on. Bring it up. Bring it up. Oak Barrel! Oak Barrel! Canada! London Rip Come on down! If you want to know the atmosphere, there it is. <laughs> Doug, that was amazing. So there's the atmosphere. What else can you tell us about the weekend? Well, I'm, I'm going to say it's, it's going to be sunny all weekend. I don't pay attention to any forecast because that's what I've willed it to do. <laughs> so well, you know a what? Big, big You've... tent up here set up one end of the stage. We added a second stage. 30 live bands. And they start playing when? Uh, they start playing tonight at 530. Uh, we've got a full set of uh, uh, entertainers on both stages. We have an acoustic stage on the north end of the park. And then we have on the south end of the park, the original stage with all of the plugged in electric drums and all that great bands. And if you go on the website, Canada's biggest party.com, you're going to see the full list. 
Great stuff. Canada'sBiggestParty.com. Doug Hill, you're joining us with London Rib Fest. Doug, the preparation for this, how has it differed from what would be a non-pandemic time? Well, I've been doing this for 30 years, and this is actually the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, it, and I let us know seen, why that is. Well, because now I'm regulated by the Board of Health, not just in my booths, but as far as my my occupancy in here, and that's what took the most amount of time is to find out how many people I can have in here at a time. Never had to do that before. It's just more the merrier. So the the liquor uh, license is is one number, one maximum. The city is another maximum, and now the Board of Health has their maximum. So who trumps who? Well, the Board of Health. So the Board of Health has controlled what we've done here, but I really appreciate the department and all the departments, actually, that came together to make such a difficult thing look so easy. Well, you've been a big part of that as well. You've been the part of that, making it all look easy. You know what? I think we can even smell the ribs cooking from here. So, Doug, well, thank I sure you. Can for... if, I could just, if I could just say I can, I can taste them in the air. <laughs> well, then maybe that's what it is that's coming through the radio right now. I think so. It's straight through my taste buds to your ears. Love it. Doug, enjoy the weekend. Again, thank you for all the hard work that has gone into this and head for Victoria Park. Now, in terms of getting in and some of those numbers to make sure that we have the right number of people where they're supposed to be, is there anything we need to know about that? Yes, you're not going to have to worry too much about it because when it all came down in stage three, we are actually at our normal capacity for the Rib Fest, and we're talking, we've never had really more than 1,000 people in here, but we have been the go-ahead by some of the uh, levels to say you can be as much as 2,000, but originally our license would say 4,000 people. We've never been to 4,000 at any given time. And, uh, and if you want, I'm going to get another team to chime in here to, uh, to show you what real showmanship sounds like. Doug Hillier with us with London Rib Fest. All right. We'll get a sense of what it's going to be like. All right, Doug. Hey, give lay me it on us. Hollering, guys. Give me, that, give me your hoots. Here we are here in London, Ontario. Come on down. The big red Oakville. On to here. Oakville, Oakville. Your Canadian team. We are here in London, Ontario. How's that for you? I love it. Doug, I know you're as busy as ever, so thanks for sparing some time for us, and have a great weekend. Can't wait for all the sunshine that you've willed to happen. Yes, that is right, and I'm, I'm going to will it to happen for all of the days. Love it. Doug, take care. All right, then. Thank you. That's Doug Hillier, one of the hardest-working people you will find. He has been organizing London Ripfest for 30 years. A few more things to organize this time around. A lot of question marks this time around, but 30 live bands. They've added an extra stage. You can hear the rippers are ready. If you're hungry, that's the place to go. Okay, let's look at the Olympics. Because it was 2010 in Vancouver that taught us to toot our own horn a little better than we had been doing. And there has been a lot to toot about over the last week because we have seen 10 medals won, all by female athletes. Tremendous. And we've got to hope for a lot more medals, more in the pool, on the track, 
Canada's women's soccer team plays tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. If you want to get up, we've got women's rugby sevens who are off to a solid start. But we also have some other stories that have come out of the games, and they bring to light what these games are about and some of the challenges that athletes can go through. And for young athletes, the challenges seem to get bigger. You know when you'd hear an athlete say, yeah, I don't read the papers. That was usually not true. They were reading any word that was written about them. But I don't read the papers. That was the old way of saying things. Now you get all kinds of information everywhere. And if you're someone who can't disconnect, it's – it's tough. It is tough. Joining us right now is someone who can appreciate this from an athlete standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, and also from the standpoint of a a performance consultant. Joining us is Natasha Wesh, who has been an athlete, who has been a coach at Western University, and now you can find her at EliteMindPerformance.com. Natasha, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Mike. How are you? Not too bad. Now, if I'm going to give you a proper title, um, give us the the proper title for you right now. Um, so right now, um, I'm a mental performance consultant and a Canadian certified counselor. So, yeah, that's that's the title. <laughs> and it is a great one because of the experience you've been through as an athlete, as a coach. When you watch the Olympics, does that cause you to kind of watch it maybe with a different appreciation of what these individuals are going through? Uh, you know, I, I, with all those hats, I, sometimes I put on my athlete hat and I get so excited and I, you know, get so overwhelmed with uh, the emotion and what's going through, what I might think might, might be going through the athlete's minds. And then, of course, from a coach perspective, I can understand how difficult and, and yeah, and then obviously from a mental performance consultant, and it's, it's all different angles. Um, but yeah, for sure, I, I, I appreciate uh, all those different angles and different perspectives when I watch. Super exciting, though. Excellent. One of the things that certainly has had a lot of people talking this week is the fact that maybe the best gymnast ever she did things in past meets that no one can even do, so they really didn't allow her to do them. That's the kind of thing, because they were too dangerous. People might hurt themselves trying to emulate Simone Biles. And yet she got to a point where she said, i got to stop. I'm, I'm not in the right headspace. Can you take us through what you've seen from Simone Biles and what she's been through this week? Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, I can't speak for her. I don't work with her. So um, this is all kind of, you know, my take on it. But, uh, you know, as you said, she's the best, the gymnast in the world and um, possibly of all time, I guess. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure on, on any athlete. And I think one of the things that we forget is that, you know, the brain is part of the body and it is a physical thing. And we haven't said that it is a you know, we can say physical injury and then we, you know, go aside and say a mental injury or a mental health issue or whatever, but it's a part of the body. And sometimes we can get uh, a little scratch on the brain, so to speak, uh, not, a, not a real scratch, but I mean a, a little scratch in terms of an injury. And, and we need to take that very seriously. And I think what's happened, uh, which Simone has done, obviously uh, takes a lot of courage and, and a lot of puts out a lot of vulnerability there, but they go hand in hand, courage and vulnerability. And uh, she's basically said, hey, there's something going on here. I don't feel right. 
and I don't think this is safe for me to continue. Whatever the background story is with, with that, wh- whatever it is, it's, it's an injury that she said, I don't feel right, and I think I need to take a step back and allow my teammates to take over. Um, and I think that's very, very courageous and, again, very vulnerable, but I think it sets a precedent, and I think it's very, very important that we talk about that in a very positive way. Natasha West joining us from EliteMindPerformance.com. That's fascinating to talk about the vulnerability and courage sides of of athletics going kind of hand in hand. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about that, put that into some more perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if you think about vulnerability, it's it's basically putting yourself out there when you know something can be dangerous or or potentially harmful whether that's emotionally or physically and you're willing to put yourself out there and so the vulnerability is putting yourself out there uh the courage is you know wanting to do that and being okay knowing that there's going to be something that could happen and so athletes do that on a on a daily basis in training in competition they put themselves out there basically on the line uh, vulnerable emotionally, physically, and they have the courage to do so day in and day out. And so, you know, being able to step back, like I said, and say, I don't know, I don't feel right. And that could be physically, but it could also be emotionally, could be mentally, psychologically. And to be able to be in tune that much, um, you know, as Simone obviously is, and many other athletes are, to be able to say that and to say, and, and, and I think the other thing is to have the coaches respect that. I think we've come a long way in terms of mental health, mental well-being, that the coaches are like, yes, okay, I understand where you're coming from and I support you. Because I know in my day when I was playing, it was like, eh, you know what, I don't care what you feel emotionally, get back out there. And that's where injuries can happen or further uh, emotional damage can happen. And we don't want that for our athletes. We want them to be at the best of their game. Natasha, the fact that that transition has happened, now you do get coaches who will say, okay, this is what an athlete is telling me, they, something doesn't feel right or they don't feel right or something's going on. It's not just about, no, nah, just fight through it, get out there, go. The fact that that transition has happened, what does that say about where we are in athletics? Well, I think it says a number of things. I think there's much more understanding, and, and I would – I would guess venture to say that there's a lot more education around mental health, mental well-being, psychological health, um, and that an education with the athletes, but also education with the coaches. And there's also support there. Like it's it's now common um, that every athlete or every team will have either a sports psychologist or a mental performance consultant uh, or a counselor that is there to support them. So you have a physical injury you go see the physio who will assess and they'll they'll say yeah you know what you're you're you feel this but you're good to go or no you're not you're not good to go we we don't think you should go and same thing with a mental performance consultant or or a sports psychologist and they'll say you know we've had a discussion and when we don't think you're strong enough or the athlete may say i don't think i'm strong enough right now to to move forward like i don't think i'm in the right place and the mental performance consultant or or sports psychologist will say yeah i support that you're right you know you i I can understand where you're coming from so i think it's education it's the support personnel that's there that says so much about um how far we've come and and that we're taking things seriously you know and and so yeah super important and i think it's such a huge huge step um for for athletes and for overall performance in general natasha west joining us 
from EliteMindPerformance.com. Natasha, one of the things that we are right now is connected, and we kind of joke around about it when something like the Olympics begins because you've got people who will love to watch, and you will watch three runs of something. The example we used the other day was skateboarding. You watch three runs of skateboarding, and all of a sudden you're looking and saying, Boy, that rail slide wasn't as good as it needed to be, was it? Whoa, you know, that that wasn't quite 50-50. And, and you, you have the ability now to have people actually comment that where other people are going to see it. It's not just the people who are sharing the couch with you in the living room and you kind of decide, oh, I, I like this athlete. Wow, look at they've, that's a, that is a dynamite performance. And you can sit back and you can do your own judging. Now that judging can take place online. And young people, young athletes, they don't disconnect very often. How challenging is it for them to stay away from what people might be saying or or the pressure that might build from what people might be saying? Oh, yeah, it, it's very, very challenging. But I think, you know, that's one of the things that I focus on in my work with, with athletes um, is helping them understand that, you know, what you feed your body, which includes your brain, is very important. You wouldn't eat, well, I don't think I would suggest eating something like fast food the day before a competition. Well, I wouldn't suggest eating uh, you know, ingesting social media the day before competition. I wouldn't suggest in, ingesting that kind of stuff on a regular basis. And, you know, social media on many levels is fast food for the brain. And that's part of it, educating athletes that, yeah, it may be pervasive, it may be everywhere, but it doesn't mean you need to ingest it. It doesn't mean you need to take it in. And I think that that's such an important step. And it, again, it's treating the mind and the brain like we do the body. We, we have a very good understanding of what is needed to train the body what to fuel the body well what do we need to fuel the mind and it's the same type of stuff so there's an education around that doesn't mean you shut off your social media and you disconnect completely although many athletes that I work with have decided to do that once they see the effects of it but um, that's not necessarily what needs to happen but it's understanding when when to ingest certain types of media and when not to and when it's important how it will affect you how does it affect your mood how does it affect your performance so on and so forth so that's an education piece that ties into you know like i said educating about nutrition but nutrition for the mind that's a really great way to look at it. i love the fast food for the brain that's social media i love that description of social media and you are finding that there are athletes who say yeah you know what i'm i'm getting off this platform or i'm i'm getting off social media don't like what it's creating yeah 100% i mean not everybody but there's a lot of athletes that once they and i and i it's like anything else you know it's like a uh, a social media diet i'll be like you know try it for a week or try it for a day, try it for two days. Let's see how long you can go. It depends how, how addicted you are to this stuff. And let's see what it does. And let's, let's actually document the changes that occur in your mood, in your performance, in your sleep, et cetera, et cetera. Just like we would document for um, nutrition, right? You make a change in your training. You make a change in your nutrition. Document it and then see what happens. And a lot of athletes are like, I cannot believe the difference. Like this is, it's so impactful that, I don't want this. I get off these all of these different platforms and they pick and choose the ones that they want that really helps them because we're not meant to know what 9 billion people, I don't know, I just made up that number, what, what 9 billion people say about us or think about us. We're not meant to know that as human beings. And so even though we can know it, doesn't mean we need to know it. It doesn't mean we need to connect. And I think that that's a huge part of, again, that education piece, which is 
what is happening now with sports psychology, with mental performance consulting, and so on. That's why it's such a huge part. It's not, it's not just about, here, I'll teach you how to visualize or I'll teach you how to do imagery or how to set goals. It's way beyond that, and that's why it's, it's such a big part of performance training for these athletes, elite and, you know, amateur. So. That's fantastic. Wow. With all that athletes can know about themselves, what is it like going through what you do and dealing with athletes in that way? Because it used to be, yeah, you know, pick up this bat and hit this ball or uh, jump from here and see how far you can go. And, and you didn't think much of it. What is it like to have so many more tools for athletes to make use of? Well, I think it's so promising. I think it, it gives us way more opportunities, um, us meaning athletes, you know, like it gives the sport world way more opportunities to maximize their potential because now you can tap into mental strength as well as physical strength and, and you can elevate your game, elevate your performance and, you know, helping athletes understand who they are, but also understand what mental strengths they have. Um, every athlete will have different mental strengths. Every athlete will have different physical strengths. And it's really tapping into that, helping them understand that, and then helping them maximize those strengths. But also, of course, work on maybe some areas that can have some development. And, and for me, it's very exciting because a lot of times athletes come in kind of green. In other words, they haven't had a lot of work done with mental performance. Uh, and so, you know, tapping into a few different areas all of a sudden sends their performance skyrocketing because it's all this untapped potential uh, from a, a mental perspective and an emotional perspective. And if they can under, sometimes it's just about understanding how the mind works. It's just kind of like teaching an athlete, here's the biomechanics of how you hit a bat or how you do whatever it is in your sport. If they understand that, they're much better at maximizing it. And it's the same thing if I can teach them, not if. When we teach them about you know, the mind and how the mind and the emotions and everything works, there's a, it's scientific, it's not just woo-woo, then they can understand and go, oh, this is how I control my emotions. This is how I use my nervousness. This is how I use my excitement. This is how I manage and breathe and so on and so forth. So super exciting. Like, I, obviously, I love my job and I love what I can, how I can help athletes. But, uh, yeah, it's super promising. And, and I think we're, the more we do this, the more we're tapping into our potential. Amazing. Natasha, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. All the best. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Natasha Wesh, athlete, coach, and right now performance consultant with EliteMindPerformance.com. Let's go back in time just a little bit. Toronto Blue Jays 8 Tampa Bay Rays three. Teoscar Hernandez went two for three with three RBIs. Justin Smoke, big day. Two for four, three RBIs. It was September 29th, 2019. And as I take off my shoes and socks to count, I'm pretty sure that's the last time the Toronto Blue Jays played a game at home. 
That changes tomorrow night, and we'll see whether they can repeat an 8-3 victory. They will take on the Kansas City Royals, and here to talk about that and more is Arash Madani from Sportsnet. Arash, I'm not sure if I've done my counting right. I, I only have the fingers and the toes to go on, but I'm thinking that may have been it. September the 29th of 2019. Has it been that long? It'll be 670 days. And no, I didn't do the math. The Blue Jays did it for us. Um, between <laughs> home games, and I am literally parked beside the Rogers Center. I'm looking at this concrete jungle right now, Mike. I'm uh, going to go in and do a little bit of pregame stuff and uh, to tee up tomorrow's game for Sportsnet. But yeah, baseball is returning to Toronto. So help us put into perspective what it has been like for a team that has now played a season and more than half a season, or a shortened season and then more than half a season, and hasn't played technically at home. What's that been like for them? So they start spring training 2020, and then the world comes to an end. And then in June, baseball announces, all right, we're coming back, we're going to do a month-long training camp, and then play a 60-game season August and September. Mike, don't forget, the Blue Jays did summer training camp in Toronto last year, hoping that they could play their season last year at Rogers Center. No dice. Buffalo became their home. Then this season, they started in Dunedin at their spring training facility, played the first two months there. Then they went back to Buffalo, where they had more renovations and upgrades made, and now to Toronto. So, Mike, there are something like 13 players presently on the Blue Jays who literally have never suited up in a Blue Jays uniform in Toronto to play a home game. Bo Bichette has played more games as a Blue Jay in Buffalo than he has Toronto. It's wild. That says it. We're talking with Sportsnet's Arash Madani about what it's like for the Blue Jays to return to Toronto. They'll do it against Kansas City. And Arash, they will also do it at the time when trades are being made, maybe all over the place eventually. We've seen an addition to the Blue Jays' bullpen. What do you make of what everybody looks at and says, oh, if only the bullpen, if only the bullpen. How do you read things? Well, Brad Hand helps. They've just brought in a veteran reliever, a guy who's closed before, has pitched in the big leagues before. They just traded for him today. The deadline, Mike, is 25 hours and 16 minutes away. Tomorrow, 4 o'clock, but who's counting? They need to add more. They've added some depth arms over the last few weeks. Hand is the best bullpen arm they've added. They need more. This is still a playoff race they still have an opportunity to get into the postseason and some people are saying well is this the year there's no such thing as if this is the year in baseball or in sports win when you can because you never know the raptors won it all in 2019 won one round last year missed the playoffs this year the washington nationals in 2019 were 12 games below 500 in late may went on a run win the world series steven strasburg has pitched as many regular season games since for the Nationals as he did just in that month of October 2019. Win when you can. If I'm the Blue Jays, I'm going for it tomorrow. Have some momentum. Reward your fan base. And if you do so, 
ticket sales will help going into the twenty twenty one off season into next into next season. We'll talk tickets and capacity and all of that sort of thing in just a moment. Arash Madani with us from Sportsnet. The Jays four and a half games behind the Oakland Athletics for that second wild card. Arash, when you're looking to deal, you're always looking at those prospects. And we hear a lot about the Blue Jays and their upcoming prospects. Is that what you need to give up to get in the position that the Jays are in? Depends what you're after. You know, Richard Rodriguez is a reliever for the Pirates. He has team control. He's going to have, yeah, you're going to have to give up prospects. If you want Craig Kimbrell, who's under team control for two more this year and next, you're going to have to give up prospects. But, Mike, I'm tired of hearing about prospects. When do prospects become anything? When you look at the Blue Jays over the last 20 years, there are two prospects they've traded that you may lament. One is Michael Young, who went on to have a terrific career with Texas. The other is Noah Syndergaard with the Mets. But that also got you a division title in 2015 and another playoff run in 2016. I think you take that. Other than that, can you name me a prospect they gave up for Josh Donaldson or Troy Tulowitzki or David Price? I'll tell you some of the names. Daniel Norris, Jeff Hoffman. They, they haven't become anything. Prospects are lottery tickets. Every now and again, one or two of them will hit. So the Blue Jays have a bunch of them. And one of the reasons that you stockpile prospects is so that you can go deal them at times like a deadline for actual bona fide major leaguers, proven major leaguers. Arash, a final note before we get to capacity and and things like that. When we look at maybe strengthening that bullpen. Let's say, let's let's do the hypothetical here. Let's say the Jays bring in arms and all of a sudden the bullpen begins to perform well and we see them hold on to leads like the one they had against the Red Sox the other night. What do you see this team as being able to be like? Well, it's just a lot of hits. I mean, what are you adding? Um, you know, are you adding another starter? Um, is it, which bullpen arm are you adding? Um, you know, there's a lot of ifs in that conversation. So let's see what they are before we can really make a determination of what they can be. Gotcha. Well said. All right, Arash, in terms of the number of fans, people are going to be wondering how many fans can go into Toronto. What do we know about that sort of thing? 15,000 is the capacity right now. Um, And that's going to be the case for the foreseeable future so long as Ontario is in um, is in stage three, and then from there we'll see. But they've sold uh, tickets to the first homestand that wraps up, I think, on like August 8th or August 9th, something like that, Mike. Um, tickets are hard to come by. There are some scattered around and available. But uh, it's going to be a scene tomorrow. It's going to be a real scene tomorrow after 670 days without be interesting to see how many people decide to gather somewhere outside, perhaps, just to just even be in the midst of the atmosphere. Look forward to it and look forward to the coverage. Arash, thank you, as always, for the time. You got it, Mike. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. That's Arash Madani from Sportsnet. 15,000 inside, and then... Right now, we hit a milestone today in terms of the number of Ontarians with one dose of a vaccine. That's at 80%. So we know that that will then be able to trigger more reopening and 
what will that mean for capacity levels? Well, let's look to the provincial government and look to public health, and we'll see where this goes. But, yeah, the tickets are going to be tough to come by, and we'll see how tough they are to come by if the Jays do add a couple of arms, do continue to strengthen that bullpen. Who knows what will come before the trade deadline. We've got a big time in sports right now with the Olympics going on. The NBA draft is tonight. The Pistons have let it be known that they will be drafting Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State, number one overall. He was always that consensus number one overall. So the Pistons, if you're a Pistons fan, and hey, there are some in southwestern Ontario, this could get fun because they had a couple of pieces before and you had a guy with... Do we call it potential superstar power? Some people do. And we'll see what happens there. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.